Both of the scriptures that we're exploring together today draw on images of shepherds and sheep, and these images were deeply resonant for God's people over the centuries. For when the Hebrew scriptures were being shaped as oral traditions and then written down all the way to Jesus' ministry on earth and onward to us today, the images of shepherds and sheep tell us much about God's relationship to creation in and through Jesus Christ. Our gospel reading comes from the book of John, chapter 10, verses 11 to 16. John places this story toward the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and eventual resurrection are quickly approaching in the timeline of this story. So into a fairly tense political atmosphere, Jesus spoke these words about himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the word of the Lord. Thank Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. O oh God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer, the one who was and is and is to come, be with us now as we consider your word. Help us to slow our frantic thoughts. Quiet the distractions within and without so that we might sense your presence close by. In and through this, your holy word, shape us into the people you dreamt of at creation. Amen. So as I talked about uh, with our children just a couple moments ago, uh, this Sunday in our calendar is called the Reign of Christ Sunday or Christ the King Sunday. It is kind of the New Year's Eve, so Advent begins the church year. So we're a little bit culturally not quite there because we're so firmly entrenched in January as the new year. But in a lot of ways, Advent is the church's January. We follow the liturgical year, sometimes we follow a lectionary, a schedule of texts. And it's all about remembering certain aspects of our faith traditions on certain days with intention. When we talk about this in Sunday school, we name Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost as the three great mysteries. And that sometimes they are so big and so strange that we can just walk right by them. So the church created seasons to prepare us to encounter those mysteries. The season of Advent is four weeks before Christmas. The season of Lent is six weeks before Easter. These things help us mark time and remember certain parts of our faith tradition together. So Christ the King Sunday, the reign of Christ Sunday, is always right before Advent begins, just like Ash Wednesday is always right before Lent begins. And it's there's a lesser-known purpose of this Sunday. There's a lot of churches that don't really get into it that much. But it 
it's there. It connects with our Jeremiah text and the text from John 10, and it has a lot of richness for us. This particular Sunday was instituted by the Pope in the 1920s, partially in response to the rise of nationalism in several different nations at the time. And it was also partially set apart as a reminder of Jesus's lordship over all creation. It was a bookend to the church year. And we'll talk more about that lordship in a moment. So if Advent is the church's January, even if it doesn't quite feel like it, our secular culture of the holidays demands a lot of celebration and nostalgia and tree lightings and class parties and on and on this time of year. At this point in the year, I feel like a lot of us are kind of dragging ourselves across the finish line of the year instead of enjoying spending time with loved ones and participating in those cherished traditions. But Advent offers us a fresh start. It's a new year in the church calendar, as well as a time of reflection. We look back and we look forward. We look back in gratitude. We look forward and hope for a better future. And so I'm curious about what do we do before those days that mark a fresh start. So in terms of our actual New Year's Eve for our calendar, a lot of us party. We wear sequins probably for the last time till the next year. <laughs> we pour champagne, we watch the ball drop, we count down to the new year, we celebrate that we've made it through another year, and we celebrate that a new year is coming. And if you observe a more low-key new year like I do, you might spend it at home reading and reflecting. But even still, there's this tension of looking backwards and looking forward. But we often enter the season of Advent quite tired and out of creativity when it comes to envisioning a hopeful future. And so this day on the church calendar actually gives us quite a gift. And that's why I wanted to spend some time talking about it in the beginning of our time together. On this liturgical New Year's Eve, we look back on the church's life together over the past year We look back at our experiences of God in our lives over the past year, and we look forward wondering what the next church year might bring. So coming back to Christ the King as Jesus is Lord and exploring what does that actually mean, we're going to find ourselves there in and through the text. So in John 10, Jesus is speaking to people who are uh, experiencing Roman oppression. They have been scattered time and time again. They have been snatched. They likely feel abandoned because of both their life circumstances as individual people and as a religious body, as a faith family. So when Jesus says that the wolf snatches them and scatters the sheep, and the hired hand runs away. Those listening to him know exactly what that feels like. They have been left, they have been scattered, they have been abandoned, or at least they feel that way where they are. And I, I think a lot of us resonate with that feeling, feeling scattered and lonely, feeling like the rug has been pulled out from under us, sometimes feeling abandoned by God. Again, also 
either because of life circumstances. We kind of understand faith as this transactional thing. So if there's a bad thing that happens to me, it's God is mad at me. And if there's a good thing that happened, oh wow, that's such a fluke. Instead of the other way around. So we can think that we can feel abandoned that way because of our own personal life circumstances, but also as a family of faith and even broader just kind of as humanity. I don't have to share a lot of details about the news stories that we have seen over the last weeks to know that we are all heartbroken by the depths of evil that exist, by the brokenness. These are seasons in which we ask, where is God? We have big questions in seasons like these. Why is this happening? And we have those big questions in our own lives, too, on a smaller scale. So we've got all of these big questions. We kind of want to have a sense of the answer. We want to know how and when and what and why. How are these things going to be fixed? And Jesus doesn't, as per usual, does not give them a tidy timeline of those things. He calls himself the good shepherd. And he says, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now I want to talk about two things here. When Jesus names himself as the good shepherd, this is an image that is so familiar, so resonant to his listeners. The words of Jeremiah were written down centuries before. The image of God as a shepherd goes all the way back. This image of God caring for people in that way is very familiar. And when they look back, and they look back with great nostalgia at uh, King David and all of the things that happened under his reign, how he became, right? If we remember, David was a shepherd boy who defeated Goliath. And so there is this marriage of shepherd and king, shepherd and lord, shepherd and ruler, that is very present in the minds of those listening to Jesus. But what I love about what Jesus does here is that he is both laying claim to that authority of kingship, of being divinely appointed to something, and he is shifting that image. King David never said, I will lay down my life for the sheep. No other king in their history had said that. In the Jeremiah passage that we heard from David, God is the one speaking of being the shepherd. I will gather my flock together. So Jesus is relating himself, identifying himself with God, and also saying, it's a little bit different. And that was complicated. It was politically charged to say that. It meant, hey guys, secretly, not so secretly, I'm the next king and we'll overthrow Rome and that will be how this goes. Like that's what people wanted to hear him say. And so when they heard this, they probably projected that into his words. 
but he was also saying, but not really in the way that you think. Yes, I am Lord. Yes, I will be king, but not in the way that you think. I am a good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I am a different kind of king. Because even though the people that Jesus was speaking to, they knew that God cared for them, even in the face of such awful circumstances, they had kind of evolved their theology. We've talked before about how it used to be that your God was tied to a geographical location. So if you were exiled, then where was your God? Are you stuck with this other nation's God? There's a shift there. They have a sense that God is still with them, even in Rome. But even still, they're struggling with that sense of what is happening, who is really Lord, how will we be cared for. And then the second thing I want to bring our attention to is this phrase of Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now, at first glance, this word, I know, seems pretty ordinary. I know that it's supposed to rain later today. I know that the sky is blue. I know, I know, I know. Um, my toddler lately, when I'm reinforcing something, I know that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Suddenly you're 14 and not four, but that's okay. Um, there are things that we just know. We kind of like throw that word around like it's just a fact that we know. In the Greek, though, there is a a subtle connotation to this word of, of progress and, and the development of perception. It means I come to know. So I have come to know my own and my own have come to know me. So I've ascertained something. I have discovered something. I have gradually expanded my perception of something. And I know that's a really subtle shift, but the the way that opens up there, it has some really good news for us and where we are and all the big questions that we're asking. Because it means that we don't have to know it all in a heartbeat. We come to know, we discover, we learn more things as we go along. We have intuition that is God-given that shows us what God is and what God isn't. So Jesus names what they do know. They have come to know him. He has come to know them. But there's still a lot of unknowns for his audience. How many more hired hands will they experience? When will they be brought together? I want to make a connection here between this coming to know and this concept called spiral learning, which you were, if you were a part of our October book group, we talked a lot about this. It is the heartbeat of our curriculum for our children. And spiral learning, by definition, means that not all knowledge is kind of downloaded in an instant. It means that, by definition, there are gradual increases in knowing, in understanding, and that things that we learn once 
gained deeper and broader meaning as we circled back to them to consider them again. Which means, by design, there is an element of not knowing in the process of coming to know the Good Shepherd. There are some things that we know and we build upon and other things we don't know, and we either trust God enough to trust that we'll gain that knowledge eventually, or we trust that we do know enough to be at peace with not knowing the answer to that particular question. Sometimes only when we look back at the spiral do we see the ways that God was with us and we see that it's a spiral at all. And so I'm curious as we think about this text to where we are in this moment, whatever is hard in your life right now, have you felt this way before? When? Whenever that past season shifted, what was the catalyst for that change? Are you spiraling right now back to something you've already learned but are learning something new and deeper about it? Is it possible to see God's presence and love abiding with you even there and then? Also in our October book group, we talked a lot about uh, this quote from Meredith Miller in her book, Woven, about how the fact that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the one who saves us, means that no matter what happens, we are still okay. Now she's writing this for a parent talking to a child. You want to say, hey, it's okay. That even if it's not quite okay, in general, we need to like immediately affirm that for a kid. And we talked at length in our discussion about, well, what does that mean when you say it's okay, but it's not actually okay? <laughs> and on a macro scale versus a micro, And we talked about how hard it is to trust this timeline that everything will be okay, whatever okay means for you. But that Meredith Miller's point in pointing out that Jesus is Lord and not uh, our income or our status or our um, any other metric of kind of success is that when we encounter those things in our lives that are hard, they will not overwhelm us and consume us because underneath of that Jesus being Lord means that we are held and cared for even in the midst of that. And so there's a freedom in not knowing some things. It's how we learn how to trust. I've talked about this a couple times before. Um, But one of the examples of this uh, from my own life, uh, we've talked about before that my dad passed away when I was a kid, um, when I was 10. And we were pretty involved in church, but he uh, really liked mowing the grass on Sunday mornings. Um, And he would come to the Christmas pageants and Easter things and those kinds of special things. But somewhere along the the way, he had been um, burned by organized religion. So it wasn't his thing. He was fine for us to kind of encounter it. um, But it wasn't something that he prioritized for himself. 
And that didn't really bother me as a 10-year-old because I'm just, you know, getting my life together. But when I was 12, 13, 14, and starting to read scripture more on my own and starting to ask some of these really big questions, many of them that don't have answers, I would read Bible verses about salvation and who ends up in heaven and who does not end up in heaven. I would take them very literally. And I went to several adults in my life and I said, listen, I don't know if my dad ever said the sinner's prayer. I don't know if my dad believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So what does that mean? Like, is he in heaven or not? And the loved ones in my life, God bless them, did not have satisfactory answers for me because there aren't really any, but they'd said, oh, oh, sweetie, he was such a good man. He was such a good man. Of course he's there. And I would say, but it says right here (laughs) that it doesn't matter how many good things you do. It's who you trust. It's who you believe in. And they would evade and avoid And it took a really long time, really long time, to grapple with that more and to come to a sense of peace of not knowing or at least guessing, but not needing to know with that kind of rigidity that we use sometimes. So often we're so eager to find all the answers that we miss the most important one, the one that we can rest in, the one big enough for all of our questions. See, if, if those folks had said to me, not, oh, your dad was such a wonderful person, did such great things, if they had said, well, Rebecca, God is so loving. Of course God would want to be close to your dad. I'm sure there's a way that that works out. I don't know how, I don't quite understand, but we know that God is loving. And we know that God loves your dad, so somehow it's going to be okay, right? That would have really shifted my understanding of that at a really young age. Because the, the most important answer to all of the questions that we wrestle with is that God loves you. That God is the good shepherd that God cares for the sheep, that God lays down their life for the sheep, that God comes to know us and allows us to come to know God, we actually know a lot more than we think we do. If that's the most important thing, that's what we point to. And God has a flock that can grow to accommodate more and more different sheep than we can imagine. If we can rest in that one answer, We know what love is and isn't, even if we haven't experienced it ourselves. We have this sense of what is and is not loving. God loves you and creation. So any other question that you are grappling with about what happens after we die, about why evil exists, about who's actually in charge, about when things in your life will change. We don't actually have answers to a lot of those questions, but we do have the answer that God loves you and is with you. And that doesn't make it immediately just better and rainbows and unicorns. 
but it gives us this abiding comfort and strength that allows us to endure all kinds of things. And it allows us to share those answers, that answer, with other people. That we can say to our kids and our loved ones who are asking these questions, well, God is so loving. I'm sure there's a way that gets worked out somehow. I don't know, but I know enough that God is loving. So as we prepare for a new church year, we begin and end our year with acknowledging the need for a savior, for a shepherd. And so I hope that we can enter into this new church year with a sense of God's immense, almost beyond imagining love for you and for me and for all people everywhere in every time. This is the gift that we have been given. Thanks be to God. Amen.